This is The Hindu on Books, a weekly podcast from India's national newspaper on the latest and the best from the world of literature. Hello and welcome to this edition of The Hindu on Books podcast. This is D Sampath and the title we picked for this episode is Neera Chanduk's new book The Violence in Our Bones: Mapping the Deadly Fault Lines Within Indian Society. Before we get to the book just a few words on the context of this book and this conversation now one of the big problems that democracy was supposed to solve in fact the big promise of democracy as such is that it would address the problem of violence reduce it to a large extent if not totally now with independent india about to turn 75 we find that violence is today endemic in indian democracy we do like to tell ourselves that india is a land of non-violence of buddha of ashoka and gandhi so how do we reconcile the story we tell ourselves of india being a civilization that practically invented non violence as a philosophy as an idea with this widespread proclivity for violence ranging from road rage and gender violence all the way to communal riots and encounter killings it is this difficult question that neera chandok a political scientist by training explores in a new book Neera has taught at Delhi University for many years and is now a distinguished fellow at the Center for Equity Studies in Delhi. Neera, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Hi. Yeah. Hello, everyone. Yeah. Uh, Neera, can you begin by telling us what prompted you to write a book on violence? Can you talk a little bit about how this book came about and how it was conceptualized? Well, two or three reasons uh, basically. one of course being a political theorist uh, i am very very well aware that the task of political theory is to clarify concepts uh, very often we use concepts that can easily substitute for another concept and violence has become a bit of a high impact word it was be- it is being used very indiscriminately to cover everything from little babies dying of malnutrition in the interiors of india to death by violence in the police thanas of delhi now there is a distinction between uh, injustice and violence and i cannot see why people would opt to use the concept of violence instead of the concept of injustice i mean injustice should evoke as much resonance in our minds as violence does but we tend to use violence descriptively but as a concept i think we have to spell out what the implications of violence are because the the use of violence is also involves responsibility for acts done and uh, that was one of the main reasons which i set out to explore the concept of violence the notion of violence and distinguish it from other evils of the human condition such as injustice or such as coercion and force and so on and so forth secondly you will see that india has been i mean you will remember that india has been sliding rapidly on the democracy index uh, which is brought out by the economist intelligence unit and one of the reasons that has been cited again and again right up to 21 report is increasing use of violence against minorities and against dissenters which should not happen in one of the major democracies of the world the largest democracy of the world and that sets you thinking about what the relationship between democracy and violence is now democracy has been justified on many grounds it it grants freedom it grants equality it grants justice but one of the main reasons which western theorists have given is that it avoids conflict the culture of deliberation and debate will help any society to avoid conflict 
Of course, it's also happened that they were not really looking at uh, racism or gender bias in their own societies, but they were looking at basically the fact that democracies don't go to war with each other. And this, this coexistence of democracy and violence in India is a matter of some, there is need to reflect on the coexistence of democracy and violence. That was the second and the main reason which impelled me to map out the various kinds of violence we do find in India. Right. I, I really like the way you've bracketed the democratic, formerly democratic society and polity we have with the actual existence of violence. And this is interesting because usually we find violence being studied in the context of uh, conflict studies and democracy studied by political scientists and political theorists. But you brought both of these things together. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things you try to do having done this is to clarify the very uh, meaning of the term violence and how we define it. And people use the term violence in many ways. For example, I mean, I've seen sports commentators describe Rafael Nadal's forehand as a very violent thing. So I'm just curious to know what, according to you, constitute the core elements of an act of violence? You know, violence can be distinguished. I'm talking about the concept of violence and not violence as a descriptive force. It can be used as synonymous with force. And when you say somebody died violently, you often mean that somebody died through the use of force or through the use of coercion. Now, this is a little odd because you can have harm done to a person without there being force used. Think of death by slow poisoning or think of death through sheer humiliation. You know, when the soul withers and and the body takes the impact of humiliation adversely. And there have been often very many, very many tragedies associated with the notion of humiliation, but strictly speaking, no force has been used. The second kind of overlap that we find is between harm and violence. Now, harm can be caused by multiplicity of other phenomena. Hunger, for instance, causes harm. Or, as I said, humiliation causes harm. And increasingly, a lot of a whole range of political theorists have started arguing that instead of opting for the Rawlsian notion of a state that creates a just society, we would do well to see that the state does not humiliate people because the force of humiliation scars the soul the way that rape or murder or attempted murder or maiming would cause. So, uh, you know, a whole range of action that would not necessarily involve force or violence can cause harm. It seems to me that the way one should look at violence is minimalist, in a, in a, not in a structural sense, but a minimalist term of violence with a notion of intention. If X has harmed Y, then X is responsible for Y. If the police force has fired upon innocent citizens, then the police must be held responsible for the act because they have harmed human lives. But if you use structural violence on the end, now I'm I'm not decrying structural violence. It's a very powerful attack on the way societies are structured to lead to harm. But it doesn't give us anything. It's like violence produces social orders and social orders produces violence and all of us are complicit in violence. The notion of structural violence was first used by the Swedish uh, political economist Johan Galtung in 1969. And he used it to basically uh, describe capitalist society, exploitation, you know, which verges on slave labor, the kind of harm that is done to people through the workings of a capitalist order. In response to Johan Galtung's structural violence, Hannah Arendt, the famous political philosopher, wrote a piece on 
how do you distinguish between force and violence, between structure and violence? So structural violence seems to me to be more of a descriptive notion than a notion that would capture what is at the heart of violence. And in a democracy, if state agencies have harmed citizens, then they must be held responsible. Otherwise, we really would not know what the difference between dying of starvation and dying through a police lattice, by the impact of police lattice, what, what are the distinction between the two? We must have an agent, we must have intention, we must have responsibility. And that is my idea that we should use a minimalist notion of violence. Otherwise, let us lose other concepts such as injustice, such as exploitation, such as slave labor, to describe the other harms of the human condition. Right. Is uh, violence as resistance, you know, the violence of the oppressed, uh, which some would argue also serves as a tool to regain agency, regain a sense of self, regain dignity. Is the violence of the oppressed qualitatively different from the violence of the oppressor, so to speak? Yeah, well, that brings me to a proposition that I wish to lay on the table. I don't think one can have an overall theory of violence. It's not a kind of a theory or a conceptual schema that can be built the way, for example, John Rawls built his concept of justice. Violence, whether violence is justified or not justified, largely depends upon the context in which it is used. And nobody less than Gandhi, who was who had sworn to Ahimsa, sworn to nonviolence, had accepted that there are conditions in which violence may be justifiable. For instance, if a mother seeing her little child rush into a crowded street, catches hold of the baby and administers a tight slap, that would not strictly be violent because she's saving the child. And that is one, one notion of intention, that you harm in order to save. And he says very specifically, a doctor that who performs surgery on you does do violence to your body, your body is cut up, but the intention is not to harm, the intention is to heal. So again, intention becomes very central to an act of violence. And this is most clearly articulated in his concept that, in, a, in fact, if your friend is suffering and she wishes to commit euthanasia, and if you help her in doing so, you may be justified provided you do not stand to benefit from her death. So your intention must be pure. It must be to help, not to harm. So in justifying violence of the oppressed, and Franz Fanon is known for justifying violence of the oppressed in a country like Algeria, which had lost its identity under French rule. It had been reduced to a department of the French government. And he said the only way the colonized can recover agency or be counted as human beings is when they stand up and confront the colonizer who has dehumanized them, who has reduced them to nothingness. You deny an individual, a state or a country or a nation, you deny him or her of agency because every individual needs an address. Now, when you take away that address from the individual, the individual is harmed. So people do recover agency by picking up the gun. Now, the phallic symbol is very, very clear in all theories of violence. And this happened in India from Tilak onwards when they said, you know, rather not even Tilak, it's Chapikar brothers who killed um, uh, Rand, who was the plague officer in Pune in, in the 1890s. And he wrote in jail, he said, stand up Hindus and flex your muscles, be a man. 
Now, that is against the violence of the oppressor. The violence of the oppressed can be understood. Can it be justified? And here, both Fanon and Gandhi, oddly enough, because they stood on opposite sides where the use of violence was concerned, on the whole, though Gandhi made certain exceptions, would argue that, look, once you unleash violence in the body politic, it, you do not control violence. Violence controls you. It is struck you into the quagmire of the depth of despair. You cannot get out of it. You become a servant to violence. So be careful about using violence. Fanon said and Gandhi said, let's not use violence except in very, very exceptional cases. The only irony is that Gandhi actually advocated suffering and performing violence upon yourself. You fast or you take lati blows or you go undergo imprisonment and you, you starve because you are suffering that nobody else should suffer. Now, this is a Jain concept, but it is also a very Catholic concept. And I've often wondered how influenced Gandhi was by Catholicism, because suffering is very, very evident in Catholicism or indeed in Shia Islam, when they harm themselves in, in actions of memory during Muharram. Gandhi's own words in Hinswaraj were not free of violence. He uses pretty strong words to castigate the, uh, to castigate the British or British civilization. So that leads you to the conclusion that violence perhaps cannot be uh, dismissed as an aberration or as abnormal or as something you do when you're not in, your state of, in a fit state of mind. It's perhaps a companion to the human condition. Maybe all of us have suppressed violence in our, in our constitution. This doesn't mean we go around harming people. I think from violence as a hidden or even a not hidden impulse to the act of violence which harms people requires a trigger. That trigger may be injustice. That trigger may be patriarchy, the caste system, communalism, or the breaking of the social contract by the government. And then that in those conditions, individuals feel that it is worthwhile to pick up a gun because the political, the set of political people who are in power just do not listen. The only problem is that Gandhi and even Fanon pointed out, be careful because violence will not leave you once you have taken up the gun. And what kind of a state will we have if your anti-colonial movement is embedded in violence? Right. Neera, one of the things uh, which automatically tends to happen when we discuss violence or talk about violence is that it's almost always loaded with moral judgment and it is supposed to be immoral, bad, avoided, etc. If we suspend value judgment for a moment and look at it the way, say, a physicist might look at gravity, you know, as a phenomenon. Yes. I mean, does it serve certain functions? I mean, I, I'm using the word function very advisedly. Yes. For example, I, I have in mind something like, say, a public hanging or a public lynching, the way it used to happen, say, in Jim Crow America or today uh, it has been happening. Here, some would argue that violence in this case is a form of communication. Something has been communicated to certain elements in society through public a performative violence, you know, what, what yeah, we call yeah, performative yeah. violence, which is shared widely on social media. Can you talk a little bit about how you would conceptualize these violent phenomena? You know, one of the reasons why democracy is preferred to pre-modern forms of government is the fact that you do not carry out punishment in the public. Uh, if you remember Henry VIII and what he did to the various people who displeased him, including his wives, in a way, it is truly shocking. I mean, uh, when he sent Anne Boleyn to the... It was not strictly a guillotine, but it was death by taking off her head. Apparently, the executioner was, was uh, advised, do it slowly so that she dies in great pain. 
and this was a man this was a man who had for her given up a hell of a lot of things and also uh, given up his his link with the catholic church now these public performances of punishment which was to send crowds into a frenzy we thought were an aspect of the past we thought democracy in a civilized country democracy do not allow this kind of public hangings or public lynching or what we accuse the taliban of doing much to us a horror at least my horror i find that when people who are who are accused of killing cows or transporting cows are lynched in public people stand around and take uh, videos of that terrible terrible thing that one man does to another I mean, what kind of a perverse mind would put it on on their phone a video that would show the inhumanity of man to man? But they are doing it, and they post it on the social media. And I cannot, you know, you have to rethink our relationship between democracy and violence. And may I continue? Or do you have another question? Uh, I I wanted to have uh, have you come in on one other aspect related to this about the uses. or the functions of uh, violence in in human society today in, in your final chapter which is called uh, the case against violence you heavily draw upon uh, gandhian thought uh, to argue uh, that non violence uh, has its merits of course and you know how it can make a really a big political uh, mobilization possible now my question here is gandhi doesn't uh, seem to make a uh, big distinctions between uh, individual violence and say uh, the kind of routine bureaucratized violence that hana arin characterized as you know the banality of yeah, evil yeah. so which could range from legal impunity to say security forces that rape uh, to managers of gas chambers or whatever you know you have so in when faced with this kind of bureaucratized violence where does gandhian non violence sort of uh, stand I mean, is it really an effective tool to counter this to fight for justice Yes. Uh, well, you know, Hannah Arendt's banality of violence was actually criticized by a whole range of political theorists. Her basic argument was that in Nazi Germany, people carried out violent acts against the Jewish community because they were just playing a role—the role of an executor of a decision given by your leader. Now, in a way, she was saying that your role—the fact that you're playing a role, even that role may be of killing other people—is a function of ideology, is a function of how your your government or people in power organize your society. And she was criticized because many people said that that the officials she was speaking of were people who were actually guilty of hating the Jews or. tremendous prejudice against the community so you cannot rule out intention but that was her explanation it was so banal because the officials of the german government just killed the jewish community without even understanding what they were doing now that became the object of great critique criticism because she was not taking into account the factor of intention however having said that it is true that when your government and i'm making a distinction between the state and the government when your government or the highest people the power in you know people in the highest positions of power do not forgive do not punish or do not even castigate people who uh, citizens who are committing tremendous acts of violence against a community and to harm somebody for no reason other than birth into a community that is hated that is despised that is made the object of perverse stereotyping is one of the worst injustices 
that can be inflicted upon the human condition. I mean, to kill somebody because he or he is a Dalit or she or he belongs to the minority community or to rape a woman just because she's a woman and women have all kinds of perverse stereotypes organized around that persona is one of the, you know, one of the most terrible injustices that are that are inflicted upon human beings and you're not even doing it because x has done something wrong you're doing it because x is born into a community and she has no control over the fact of birth into a particular community you cannot punish people for factors that they are not responsible for now in a way when a community is singled out and hate speech is targeted towards the community by people who are in the highest positions of power when this community is mocked and laughed at when its practices its vocabulary its language is laughed at it's a difference between being laughed at and laughing with when you laugh at somebody you take away their humanity you diminish them as individuals and if the people in power do not castigate it, do not prohibit it, do not even scold those guys who are responsible for these inhuman acts of violence, whether it's on the basis of caste or on the basis of gender or even transgender or the basis of religion, then what do you expect societies to do? Because, you know, old-fashioned political scientists would say a state is, uh, I'm sorry, a society is what? It is because of the state. Politics of the state dictates the politics of society. In a way, when your state is complicit through silence, through not castigating people who have committed outrageous acts of violence, violence becomes normal. It becomes something for you to say in public what you would have not said 10 years ago or 15 years ago. And having grown up in uh, post-independence India, I can tell you these things. I've never heard these things in the public sphere, what we're hearing today. And that kind of dehumanizes what we construct as the other. So when you kill and you murder and you commit mayhem, you're not looking at that person as a human being. You're looking at that person as a thing, as a carrier of an identity. And what other injustice could it be? I hold the government and the people in power completely responsible for the violence that has been unleashed upon our own people. I'm not saying other governments were not responsible. Of course they were. The kind of violence that was inflicted upon people in Maoist hit regions, for instance, was there ever since Maoism broke up, uh, broke out in India. But somehow the atmosphere of violence, speech, violence, acts, violent hate, violent, and I'm using violent descriptively here, you know, just violence towards others has become so generalized that I think people don't even think twice about before doing all these things. And it's truly, truly scary. Right. Uh, Neera, just to, uh, I mean, you've spoken really at length about violence, which is targeted at certain communities, you know, targeted uh, violence, uh, which has been sort of often uh, been in cases where state parishes have been complicit. When we speak of state apparatus, it brings us again back to how bureaucratized violence has become. I'm coming back to this point again because I wanted you to sort of speak a little more about how structural violence uh, operates. You know, we spoke yesterday about uh, this distinction between structural violence and, and what is uh, the other kind of violence, the more conventionally understood form of violence. And you made this distinction about intentionality, you know, how it is uh, it needs to be there for an act or a phenomenon to qualify as uh, as as harm that is done and in in the case of structural violence it would be more appropriate to classify it as injustice and it's not 
helpful conceptually to merge these two concepts now i i was thinking of something which happens uh, where one may not even the agent if one may use that word is not even conscious of who the target of violence is for example the evictions which happen in our cities from time to time i mean i'm not talking about the assam episode recently because there some might argue that there was a targeted community in uh, in at play so if, even otherwise in in urban areas some bureaucrat somewhere or some uh, under secretary or whatever secretary decides to sign a particular sheet, sheet I mean, set of papers or documents and two days later there are bulldozers coming and evicting people there might be police firings and people die now this kind of violence when I mean, you could argue it is structural violence yes because there was no intention behind it nobody uh, intended that somebody should be harmed in this way they just wanted eviction to be done but at the same time there is also a clearly uh, a chain of intention which is bound to cause uh, harm physical harm so how do you understand something like this well certainly you, you we use the concept of structural violence descriptively to describe the violence of state officials when they do not regard citizens of being sufficiently important for them to forbear to prevent certain action that would harm them it would be an indication but uh, of the dehumanization of certain people on the basis of class or on the basis of caste you know the urban areas as you rightly pointed out are specially known for the complete inhumanity that descends upon the inhabitant as do does the inhumanity that descends upon members of a crowd of a mob rather sudhir kakkar has done very good work on what happens to you when you're a part of a crowd we go completely berserk the first thing that you do is to lose your sense of touch you know normal life we are very conscious of who touches you who you touch it's not out of untouchability but you do not like being touched by strangers but in during a period of mob uh, assaults on property or on other communities people lose that sense of being distinct they become a part of a mindless force that is just intent upon killing and the first instance of this crowd behavior was actually in maharashtra the latter part of the 19th century particularly when tilak used the hindu mobs to make a point and this was it's very intricate the argument it was connected with the whole idea of representation with the first act of 1898 and suddenly mobs you know change their a, a procession let me put it this way a procession changes its route and goes into areas which are minority area and becomes a mob so people are killed properties desecrated mosques and temples are ransacked i mean you have all kinds of evil so that is one kind of definitely structural violence but behind that there is intention when you start distinguishing yourself from the other on the question of, on the issue of birth you see this is a sociological phenomena that you always build a collective identity in opposition to somebody else but when that identity becomes a murder weapon in your hands that is certainly a case of intentional violence finally i'll give a small example fight to, to to wrap up this particular segment of the argument let me give a small example you know in 1909 uh, gandhi wrote his hind swaraj he wrote it as is well known uh, on on ship he he was uh, traveling back to south africa after a stint in london now in london what had happened was there was this young man called madanlal dhingra who was particularly i mean he was not very distinguished he was not a good student belonged to a very very affluent family from sir and his father had sent him to england to study and he had completed his studies he was coming back to india and then he got sucked into the india house crowd 
Now, the India House in London, which had been set up by Shamji Krishna Varma, was those days completely under the sway of this magnificent speaker, Savarkar. And those days of his life, Savarkar was dedicated to the cult of violence. Now, when you look at his book on the, on the 1857 revolt, you realize that he actually glamorizes violence. And younger people, and you find all our national leadership at some point had been in London and they had gone to the India House and got swayed by the revolutionary terrorism that was in any case sweeping India after the 1905 partition of Bengal. You know, young men were going to Russia, they were going to Ireland to learn the tactics of guerrilla war, and violence was a widespread tool of the national movement. Anyway, to come back to the story of Madanlal Dhingra, he gets under the, you know, he comes under the influence of Savarkar, who was a very charismatic leader. And in July uh, 1909, uh, the India House has a Remembrance Day for the victims of the 1857 revolt. And he decides to take a life. He picks up a gun and there is another celebration. And he kills a man whom he thinks is Lord Curzon. It actually is Lord Curzon Wiley, who was the secretary to the Secretary of State, uh, Lord Minto. Or was it Lord Morley? I forget. Now, he kills that man. And when the note is found in, of course, he's executed by the British, and the note is found in his desk, he says, a child of Mother India can do nothing but kill, take a life. Now, a colleague of mine, Madhavan Palat, has pointed out that revolutionary uh, terrorists in the early part of the 20th century were individualistic. They were not concerned with joining with a mass movement or with a political party. They just picked up a gun, three, four of them formed a group, and this happened in Europe as well as in India. They were speaking the language of violence. And it happened particularly in London, where all the young hotheads were talking about removing British rule through violence, and Gandhi despaired. And he wrote Hind Swaraj as his defense against violence. And one of the arguments of the Hind Swaraj is, it is morally superior not to be violent than to give in to your most baser impulses. So in a way, when you see the context of violence, speech, encouragement of violence against the colonial power and the irresponsible act of violence, I mean, these guys just got up one day and started killing a white man. Very often they kill the wrong white man. I mean, that is also a fact of revolutionary terrorism. They kill the wrong white man, they just have to kill, take a life. And then Gandhi writes his, his tract on Hind Swaraj, which is also a justification over himself. That culture of violence, which justifies and legitimizes violence, cannot be ruled out when you think about it. Yeah. Right, right, right. Neera, uh, thank you so much for sharing your uh, thoughts on this. I mean, I'm, I'm almost two-thirds of the way through the book. Just for the benefit of readers, I just wanted to share the main chapter headings that sort of divide your book. You begin with India's partition, then go on to the legacy of communal conflict, caste-based violence, India's many insurgencies, specifically Kashmir, then there's a chapter on the Northeast, and you end with Maoist violence. And as we uh, conclude this podcast, I mean, you sort of coincidentally ended with Savarkar, and Savarkar is sort of back uh, in a big way in today's India. Any concluding remarks that you want to comment on this aspect as we wind up? Since Savarkar gave up his whole, wholesale dedication to violence once he was in jail, we don't see him uh, cultivating, but the kind of impact he had upon young minds was truly phenomenal. Actually, I, till I started reading the impact of Savarkar upon somebody like Dhingra, who was quite mindless, the, you know, you realize that a charismatic figure can impel you 
to do things. You know, there is a saying attributed to Voltaire, which is not strictly true because Voltaire, Voltaire said some, I mean, many sayings are attributed to Voltaire. He says, if they can make you believe in absurdities, they can make you commit injustice. You know, when you start impacting young minds, the, the kind of beliefs that are truly absurd in another context, you can sway mobs. That is why liberal theorists are very, very scared of demagogues. Two things that liberals are scared of, phenomena of democracies, one is the mob. One is just people getting together and turning into a mob and wrecking things. And the second is a demagogue, because a demagogue can sway people to do the most irrational things. And that is what we are worried about in our country. We should beware of demagogues because they can, uh, you know, the societies can descend into wholesale insanity. Isn't the partition enough? When you read about the partition, that is why I used a lot of literature while writing the chapter on partition. The kind of horrors that were perpetuated upon people, that should be enough. Societies must learn from their history. You don't remember history in order to reiterate it. You learn from history to avoid the same mistakes you have made. We have seen what religion has done to people. We have seen how the notion of the census has created communal animosity. Because once you start counting figures and saying that they get, and when it's linked to representation in the legislative assemblies, you have the making of a very explosive situation. We must learn from history, and that is why I've explored violence, because let us learn and let us learn to live with each other as fellow citizens. And we're not even talking about a good society. We're talking about a decent society. Right. I think that quote by Voltaire uh, is something I think we could probably uh, have to keep in bear in mind as we move on. They, if a demagogue or whoever can make you believe in absurdities, then of course they can uh, make you unjust acts. On that uh, sobering note, thank you so much, Neera, for uh, doing this podcast with us. Pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Hindu on Books. You can now find The Hindu's podcasts such as In Focus and Parley on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other major platforms. Write to us with comments and feedback at SOCMED4, S-O-C-M-E-D-4 at the rate thehindu.co.in. 